Scripture reading for today comes from Acts 2, verses 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated. And uh, good morning and welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series called Acts, The World Turned Upside Down comes from Acts chapter 17, when a mob so angry that Christians have come to their town says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. That's how the world turns upside down, by faithful followers bearing witness to the reality that Jesus is king. It was true in the first century, and it's true today. Now, one of the obstacles to bearing witness to Jesus as king is that, uh, is that sometimes we can come up with our own personal or imagined versions of Jesus. A picture of Jesus that doesn't flow so much from Scripture, but flows from our own desires, from our own biases, from our own ideals. A Jesus of our own making. But the reality is that our faith, Christianity, is inseparable from Jesus. Uh, some have even phrased it like this, Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Jesus. And so the less we have a true understanding of Jesus, the less we have a true grasp of our own religion of Christianity, uh, yeah, the less we have a grasp of our own, Christ our own religion. And so in our passage today, uh, the apostle Peter gives a speech. Um, you could call it also a sermon. 
And he's explaining to everyone present in Jerusalem at Pentecost who just witnessed the mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus' followers and they began speaking uh, in tongues about the mighty works of God. And so Peter's explaining what just happened. And he connects it all back to Jesus. In his sermon, in fact, he repeats this phrase three times. This Jesus, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, not that Jesus, not some other version of Jesus, not your own personal Jesus, this Jesus. So we're going to look a bit more closely at this Jesus, uh, in particular the three times that Peter emphasizes this Jesus. So our three points will be that this Jesus is a crucified man, one, two, the resurrected Christ, Three, the ascended Lord. And so let's begin with our first point, a crucified man. Uh, It's become a a sort of running joke in my household that whenever I tell my wife I'm going to go into the garage to work on something on my bike, uh, real quick, she responds, see you in three hours. Because time and time again, when I've gone to do my own bike maintenance, whether that's, you know, realigning the rotors or bleeding the brake lines, covering or converting the, the wheels to tubeless wheels, it takes significantly longer than I think it will when I set out to do it. It is rarely real quick. And what's essentially happened is that I have failed to count the cost ahead of time, so to speak. The cost in time of doing these various bike maintenance jobs. My wife has not failed to count the cost, but I have failed to count the cost. I thought it would cost 30 minutes, but it actually took me three hours. In the uh, first couple verses of our passage, Peter briefly describes Jesus' life on earth. And if we consider what Jesus' life on earth was like, it gives us some clues about what the cost might be for us of following Jesus in this life on this earth. Here's how Peter starts in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus is a man. Jesus is human, just like us. He became human. He took on flesh. That's why we, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus is a man. He's also God. Uh, He's truly God, and he's truly human. One person, two natures, one of them divine, one of them human. And this doctrine, the humanity of Christ, uh, was something that the earliest Christians struggled to believe. You know, all sorts of heresies popped up because it was hard to accept that Jesus was fully human. You know, well, maybe Jesus only appeared to be human, but was actually divine only. That was the heresy of docetism. Or maybe Jesus is what happens when a divine mind takes on a human body. It's the heresy of Apollinarianism. Or maybe Jesus is really two persons. There's a divine person with a divine nature, 
and a separate human person with a human nature. That's the heresy of Nestorianism. Or maybe Jesus is a person with neither a human or a divine nature, but a totally new type of nature that comes from throwing human nature and divine nature and blending into a blender and mixing them up. That's the heresy of Eutychianism. But they're all wrong. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, truly divine, truly human. And so not only a man, not only human, but human nonetheless. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, just like a human, just like I'm a human, just like you're a human. But then Peter continues with what set Jesus apart among humans. Verse 22 continues, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Jesus did many mighty works and wonders and signs. This was in part how God attested to Jesus that we should listen to him, follow him, obey him, trust him. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 and had food left over. He made the blind see. He healed the leper's spots. He told paralytics that they could stand up and walk. He cast out demons. He raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, Jesus was amazing, right? He did all these miraculous things, and not just for the sake of doing miraculous things. He did miraculous things that healed and helped people. And so people couldn't get enough of him. They followed him wherever he went. They sought him out. They wanted to be with him, to have him touch their lives. He was the best, right? Jesus was the best human to ever live. But then what happened? Peter continues in verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What happened to the best human to ever live? He was killed. And this is an interesting verse because it says two things that might initially seem to contradict, but are actually perfectly harmonious. Jesus, the best human to ever live, was both delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by human hands. And so we have God's sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time in this verse. You know, Peter can say two things at once. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you killed him. God planned it, and you did it. This Jesus of Nazareth, the best human, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And that should be sobering for us as his followers, because I think that this can touch on one of the ways that we build up an imaginary Jesus in our minds. We might think that Jesus won't let us suffer, that following Christ will necessarily make our lives easier. It'll reduce pain. And that might end up being true in some regard. There certainly are ways, you know, just beyond the spiritual benefits that Christianity will be good for you, you know, faith can often have a positive effect on your life, especially as you leave behind destructive patterns in your life. But it would be a mistake to believe that following Jesus guarantees or that we should expect less pain, less difficulty, less suffering. You know, an uncomfortable reality that we all need to sit with is that if we follow Jesus, 
we're following the best human who ever lived, yet who was crucified. And if that's what happened to Jesus and we follow him, why would we expect an easy and comfortable life then? Jesus is proof that bad things can happen to good people because the worst thing happened to the best person. You know, it was, it was at human hands, and sometimes I think maybe we find some comfort in saying, you know, well, it was just sinful humans being unjust, and it was, but don't forget, it was also according to God's sovereign plan. God is sovereign over everything that happens, and he doesn't promise a pain-free life for us. In fact, sometimes he says just the opposite, it seems. Take John sixteen thirty three. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will. You will have tribulation in this life, in this world. Jesus warns his followers of that. Luke 14, Jesus says to be sure to count the cost of following him. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? It's almost as if he's discouraging people from following him. He's not, but he's being very realistic. Yes, the best decision you could make is to follow me, but fair warning, it's going to be costly. Discipleship will be costly. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of your discipleship, of following the best human who ever lived and then was killed for it? I mean, that Luke 14 passage is brutally honest about this. Jesus says following him requires renouncing all that you have. Nothing can come before Jesus. Nothing can be above Jesus, which might mean you're required to give up comfort or security or respect or power. It might require some difficult relationships in your life, maybe even severed relationships in your life. It might require your very life. Jesus' life was required of him. So why would we expect anything less? Have you counted the cost of following this Jesus, a crucified man? What might it cost you? Of course, even though Jesus was a crucified man, he died, he didn't stay dead. And that takes us to our second point, the resurrected Christ. About five years ago, Nicholas Kristof, who's an opinion columnist for the New York Times, uh, had an interesting article where he had a back and forth uh, conversation with Pastor Tim Keller about what it means to be a Christian. And Kristof begins the conversation by saying, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Are these essential beliefs, or can I mix and match? And Keller replies over the course of a couple questions and answers Kristoff uh, by saying, essentially, those are integral to the Christian faith. You can't mix and match. And so Kristoff finally asks, where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian, a Jesus follower, a secular Christian? Can I, can I be a Christian while doubting the resurrection? And essentially what Christoph is asking is, can I have a Jesus of my own making? Can I have a Christianity of my own 
making? Can I keep the teachings about caring for the poor and oppressed, but leave behind miracles, the need for atonement, the resurrection, the things that, you know, we modern people in the 21st century uh, just know can't be real? Our passage in Acts 2 makes clear that the Jesus Peter is preaching did, in fact, resurrect. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. This Jesus is the resurrected Christ. We killed him, but God raised him up from the dead, and we all witness that. Now, there is a slight disconnect between Uh, what Peter's audience needs to be convinced of and what modern readers of this passage need to be convinced of. You know, someone in our day and age would most likely be concerned with questions about the resurrection, whether Jesus truly rose from the dead or not. And that doesn't mean that people in the first century didn't also need that question answered. Uh, They did. They, They weren't gullible and unscientific and just ready to believe anything. They knew how the world worked. They knew that dead people typically stayed dead. And so resurrection would have been a miracle to them, too. That's why there's so much effort witnessing to the resurrection. Jesus appears to people. Uh, He lets them touch him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where some of our passages during the time of renewal came from, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 um, that, uh, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're to be pitied. And so he's clearly addressing people who need to be convinced that a resurrection actually happened. You know, that's why he tells them, Paul tells them things like, uh, Jesus rose on the third day, appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to James, he appeared to more than 500 people at once, most of whom are still alive. And so what Paul's telling them is, you can go find and talk to these people who saw this. And so they did need to be convinced that it really happened. But in our passage, Peter is actually focusing more on demonstrating something else about the resurrected Christ. Not only that Jesus resurrected, but that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. You see, Peter is speaking to Jews in Jerusalem, and so what does he do? He cites the Old Testament. He cites the scriptures that they already believe, Psalm 16. And, uh, you know, as a brief aside on this, what Peter's doing here is just persuasion 101. If you're seeking to persuade someone, you need to use arguments so much as is possible that rest on premises your audience accepts. Um, A seminary professor of mine once described it like this. Think of a boat with cargo on it approaching a port. The port is the person that you're seeking to persuade. The cargo is what you're trying to to persuade them of. And the boat is the premise that the argument rests upon. If you want the port to accept the cargo, it needs to be on a boat that the port will receive. I think so much of uh, how we argue today, whether it's about apologetics or Christianity or anything else, Uh, But so much of how we argue today totally fails to do this work of persuasion. It fails to do the work that persuasion requires. Sometimes it can seem like those who seek to defend the Christian faith just like to say, well, it's in the Bible, so that settles it. And, you know, that is true. And, And I guess if all you care about is being right, that's enough. But if you care about actually being persuasive, if you love the person you're trying to persuade, it's going to require work. You have to find boats that their port will receive, so to speak. And so Peter models that perfectly here. He's trying to persuade an audience of first century Jews, that's the port, 
that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that's the cargo, and he does so by citing the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 16, which the Jews believe is true and authoritative. That's the boat, the boat that the port will receive and take the cargo off of. So back to what Peter says. What exactly does Peter say? Well, his argument works like this. He begins by saying in verse 24, you know, God raised Jesus from the dead, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. And then he brings King David and Psalm 16 into it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, Peter's saying that David spoke of Jesus, and then Peter quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explains why he's highlighted this passage in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's almost like Peter is speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Guys, I'm pretty sure that David is still dead, and so this psalm can't be speaking about David. His soul is still in Hades, which Hades, by the way, doesn't mean hell. It just means the place that the dead go to await judgment whatever that judgment ends up being. So David's dead. His soul is still in Hades. His flesh saw corruption. If you went and opened David's tomb right now, it would be decayed human remains. And so what's Peter's point? David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. Verses 30 through 31. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You know who truly wasn't abandoned to Hades? Do you know whose flesh truly did not see corruption? Jesus. This Jesus, this Jesus who God raised up, he is the resurrected Christ. He's who the Old Testament was pointing us to. He's who David was prophesying about in Psalm 16. David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about someone greater, the true and greater king who sits on the throne of David forever. This Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who the Old Testament spoke of, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. This Jesus is the resurrected Christ. That's what Peter is saying and declaring in this passage. He's really the Christ. He really resurrected. Here's why that matters uh, for us. You know, Nick Kristoff from earlier is very sincere, and he engages in good faith conversations about Christianity, and so I'm not trying to insult him or put him down in any way. But he and many others like him, and maybe even you, want part of Jesus, but not all of him. They want to associate with some of his moral teachings, uh, or maybe they find him inspirational, but they don't want the supernatural. They want Jesus without the miracles. But you can't separate them. Consider the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, the famous words and teachings of Jesus. 
People like them, even those who aren't Christians, they say things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on. And they sound nice. But if Jesus did not resurrect, if we won't also resurrect, then they really ring hollow, don't they? I mean, let's be honest here. If, it's, if it is only possible for someone to take if, it's, if it is only possible for someone to take or leave Christ's resurrection, if they're operating, they're operating from a position of incredible privilege, if life is so comfortable that the hope of Christ's resurrection makes little to no difference. But for many people, they need the Beatitudes to be true. And how can the kingdom of heaven belong to the poor in spirit if there's no resurrection? How can those who mourn be comforted if there's no resurrection? How can the meek inherit the earth if there's no resurrection? How will mercy be shown to the merciful if there's no resurrection? You know, if Christ has not resurrected, then our faith is worthless. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our sins have not been forgiven. If Christ has not been raised, then even if someone who died in the faith, they've perished forever. To quote Paul again, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised. Jesus is the resurrected Christ. And so if you're in him, you can know for sure that the poor in spirit really will get the kingdom of heaven. The meek really will inherit the earth. Those who mourn now really will be comforted. They'll laugh later. Your sins really have been forgiven. Yes, you will die one day, but you will also resurrect one day. This Jesus is the resurrected Christ, and it makes all the difference. Now, just because all that is secure now, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, our own resurrection, does that mean that we can just sit back and relax? We've got the get-out-of-hell-free card to play. I can do whatever I want until then. Of course not. And that takes us to our final point, the ascended Lord. You know, we've all been witnessing the past couple of weeks the horrible, horrible war occurring in Ukraine right now. And it's terrifying, it's depressing, it's scary. One thing that has stuck out to me during these weeks is the president of Ukraine's leadership and the Ukrainian people's response to his leadership in the midst of such a horrible situation. Now, obviously, the president of Ukraine is not a perfect person, but by and large, it seems that he has risen to the occasion, and Ukraine has surpassed everyone's expectations in this war because of how he's led. He's stayed in the country rather than fleeing, despite the fact that he is a target for assassination, and he continues to let his people know that he is there with them. He also advocates for aid that his country needs. He makes passionate pleas to countries around the world. He mobilizes his military and civilian populations for the defensive effort. He's leading. He's influencing people. He's inspiring people. He's enacting change. That's leadership. You know, maintaining the status quo is not what you want from your leaders, and especially not from your president during wartime. Maintaining the status quo would mean their sure defeat, but his leadership is changing everyone's hope for how this ends. Peter concludes his sermon with one final, this Jesus. In verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
We talked about Christ in the previous point, but Peter adds here that Jesus isn't just the Christ, he's also the Lord. He has power and authority. He's our leader. He didn't come to maintain the status quo on earth or in your life. He came to turn your world upside down. Jesus is the Lord, the ascended Lord. In verse 33, Peter says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. He ascended, and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on his church. And then Peter contrasts David with Jesus again by quoting what David wrote in Psalm 110 this time, verses 34 to 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, if David didn't ascend to the heavens, who could he possibly have been talking about when he wrote this? Jesus. Again, Peter is persuading his Jewish audience that what Jesus has done fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of David. The previous contrast was about his resurrection, and this one is about his ascension. Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father fulfills what David said. And it also shows that Jesus is the Lord. He is the ascended Lord. This is actually the earliest confession or creed, you could call it, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This is what turned the world upside down, remember? Acts 17, these men have turned the world upside down by saying that Caesar isn't the true king, Jesus is the true king. And what do lords do? What do kings do? They lead, they reign over their kingdom, they rule over a specific people, they make laws and decrees, they appoint other authorities, officers and ministers to govern the people of their kingdom, they encourage righteousness and justice, they punish injustice and oppression, they protect their people from their enemies. They don't just maintain the status quo, they enact change, they build something, they grow their kingdom, they lead their people somewhere. Is Jesus leading you anywhere? Or is your Jesus just maintaining the status quo in your life? The real Jesus, this Jesus, is the ascended Lord, and he is leading each and every one of us somewhere individually, and he's leading us somewhere collectively. He's not maintaining the status quo. He's enacting change. He's turning the world upside down. And look, that doesn't change the fact that you can come to Jesus as you are. One of the most glorious truths of the gospel message is that you do not have to change first before you come to Jesus. You can come however you are. It's grace. It's a free gift. But do not be confused. Jesus promises that you can come as you are, but he also promises not to leave you as you are once you come to him. That was the whole point of counting the cost of discipleship. Maintaining the status quo is cost-free, but discipleship is costly. Discipleship means change, and Jesus intends to change you, to sanctify you, for you to be reformed more and more into his image, to become who he made you to be. And so I'll ask you again, is Jesus leading you anywhere? Where is he leading you? What is he changing in you? What might he change in this world through you? Is Christ your Lord, not only your Savior, but your Savior and 
Lord? Is Christ your King? Is Christ your Lord? Are you following His lead? I'll conclude with this. You know, we all bow before Jesus' Lordship imperfectly. And thankfully, His commitment to carrying out the task of being our Lord and King doesn't depend on our ability to treat Him as such. You know, Jesus' leading and ruling and reigning doesn't ultimately depend on you. Jesus is not going to maintain the status quo even when we do. From the beginning, you know, the act of creation itself, uh, Jesus has been rejecting the status quo and enacting change, making something from nothing. The incarnation, Jesus becoming human, is rejecting the status quo and enacting change. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, it's all about rejecting the status quo and enacting change, and he's not done yet. As Lord, Jesus is going to defeat all your enemies, sin and death being the greatest ones. As Lord, Jesus is going to bring you into heaven where he is now. As Lord, he is going to give the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit. He's going to comfort those who mourn. He's going to satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's going to give the earth to the meek. He's changed things, and he's going to keep on changing things. Jesus is turning the world upside down. Why wouldn't we follow his lead? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for sending your son as a man who did miracles and wonders and yet still was crucified. Father, we pray for the strength of your Holy Spirit to follow in his footsteps, whatever the cost. We thank you, Lord, that our sins have been forgiven and that we can know that for sure because of Christ's resurrection. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we join the ascended Lord in heaven. It's all in his name and to his glory we pray. Amen.